please to 2 Timothy 4. In the same passage as we were two weeks ago, as we did the first element of this message, uh, we last week were topical uh, for Thanksgiving. Uh, my intent is um, we have one more specifically on 2 Timothy 4, 14 through 22. We're going to talk about truth. Um, but I also do have another direction that I want to take you next week uh, as it relates to both what we talked about last time, which was handling conflict through humility, and then this week in forgiveness, and, and I'm going to draw upon those uh, next week, um, actually the week after, excuse me, to um, speak to truth, forgiveness, and then we're going to also combine that with the nature of Jesus Christ in his advent. How to handle conflict. And this week we're talking about forgiveness. Remember where we find ourselves. Paul was speaking to Timothy of a man named Alexander who was a coppersmith. He had done him much wrong. Paul's response to the man, though we do not know what he said to him, was the Lord reward him according to his works. In this, we see a willingness for Timothy to defer, or excuse me, for Paul to defer justice to the Lord. And we use this as a means by which to consider the nature of humility and conflict. That the first thing that we need to do, if we're going to orient ourselves rightly to some measure of conflict, whether um, that conflict is um, brought on by an, an individual toward us because of their anger or something toward us, or whether that be uh, because, as we'll talk about next week, we have to tell the truth. And we know that the truth is inevitably going to bring us to a point of conflict. The first thing I have to do is I have to set myself aside. I have to get rid of self. I have to take self out of the equation. And so we have this first point. In truth, or excuse me, in conflict, remember humility. In obedience to our Lord, following the example of our Savior, we exercise humility. We get rid of self. We prioritize the testimony and the commands of our Father expressed in his holy word. But this is not the only virtue that we see as Paul speaks toward these things. And so today we speak of forgiveness. And I'm actually going to just talk about forgiveness, then we'll bring our context in right at the end of our time together. Consider it a very long introduction. In conflict, remember Forgiveness. Forgiveness is a deeply misunderstood virtue in our day. It is one that I find myself running into all the time, particularly as I interact with people in the jail. Um, the people in the jail, many of them um, are there because they've made choices. Don't, don't get me wrong. But they're there They've had hard lives. Can I put it that way? They've been wronged and wronged deeply. Fathers, mothers, siblings, sometimes strangers. Uh, not, not all of them. They all, as I said, made their choices and they are there because of the choices that they made. But many of them have had very hard lives. And they struggle particularly with this concept of forgiveness. And I find that many of them are struggling to overcome the things that they so desperately desire to overcome in the physical 
because they're so mangled in the spiritual. And it is not just that they don't understand the, the, the nature of Jesus Christ and, and, and what, what happened on the cross, but many other times it's because they've never taken what happened on the cross that they understand and then allowed it to be the basis by which they interact with their human and physical circumstances around them. In other words, they are so thankful for what Christ did for them on the cross, but they've never connected the dots to start treating others the same way or to start seeing, filtering their circumstances through the nature of Jesus Christ's work on the cross. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we considered Paul's thoughts on this man, Demas. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, this present age, as we spoke through it, warning ourselves against the spirit of the age, various spirits which exist so prevalently and unopposed around us that we might even never stop to think if they're biblical. Things that have grown up around us in such a way that they are just the norm. And it's not until the Spirit of God enters into the equation and, and pricks our hearts with a, a fundamental reality that all of the sudden we recognize that this thing that we've taken for granted all of our lives is actually contrary to sound doctrine and there needs to be a fundamental change, another, me, another way that we have to start swimming upstream. Well, in my life, forgiveness was one of those. This is a bit of a personal testimony here. Uh, forgiveness was one of those spirit of the age issues which any, for any number of years, especially throughout my young life, really until I was 20, well, I don't know, it was after I got married that it really clicked because it was my wife who taught it to me. Um, so whenever, uh, whenever that was, it, it was not until my mid-20s. Let's, let's just, I don't even remember how old I was when I got married, but it was not until my mid-20s um, that this clicked. With whatever, and, and, and at that point, I was in seminary. I understood the Bible pretty well. I'd been memorizing it for years. I could quote its verses, but this concept had never fully clicked. I took for granted the definition of forgiveness and filtered any call to offer forgiveness or to be forgiven through the lens of how I understood it without ever really stopping to think about whether or not I was defining it properly. And we do this, don't we? We have to be careful with this. I'll, I'll say words from the pulpit, and it behooves me every once in a while to stop, like the word argument, right? To stop and say, what does this word mean? And am I interpreting it properly? We're going to see another one of these uh, in, in our context this week. As Paul speaks to these things, he says in verse 16, at my first answer, no man stood with me. That word answer there is the word apologia from which we get the word apology. Now, when I say apologize for something, the thing that comes into most people's minds is acknowledge a fault or a wrong. But that's not what apology is. That's not what apologetics is. Apology is at its fundamental root a defense right? A reasoning. It is me telling you why something is the way it is. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word that speaks to defending oneself more than it actually speaks to repenting or, or confessing, right? And so when Paul says at first answer, at first apologia, at first defense, he was defending himself. He was defending something here. 
And so we need to understand what is forgiveness if we're going to then assimilate the idea of forgiveness into our lives. And so let's begin there. Because it's necessary that we allow the lens of the Bible to define and then to be the bounds by which we, we acknowledge these words. So we'll talk through the text itself after we get this definition of forgiveness and lay out some principles related to it. Now, most biblical virtues are not difficult to define or necessarily to understand. The Bible tells us that God has spoken. He has revealed himself through his son. To this end, when the Bible says love one another, I know exactly what this means. Not only because Jesus follows this with, as I have loved you, but also in so much the more because the Bible tells us that we are supposed to be followers of Christ. So I can know that when Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, he is actually constraining what he means by love. And we're not talking about Disney love, right? We're not talking about the kind of love that we see in culture, the emotional, I fall into it, I fall out of it, I, um, I am, am bound by some uh, unencumbered force that is dragging me along through its currents and bringing me uh, up and down and, and, and around. That, that's not what the Bible says speaks of when it speaks of love, right? Love one another as I have loved you. A conscious, deliberate choice to do what is best for another regardless of self-interest and regardless of circumstances. That's what Jesus did for us, right? He made a conscious choice, a deliberate choice to do what was best for you and I regardless of his own self-interest and regardless of his circumstances. He submitted himself in love to the Father. He came in love for us. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. And so we define love by what we see in Christ, right? And that becomes the very definition of biblical love. The same thing happens with forgiveness. So what did Christ express in forgiveness. Well, let's start in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Paul writing, he says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. So the call that is laid upon the believer is to forgive and to forbear one another as they have been forgiven. Okay, the nature of Christ's forgiveness. Let's set our definition based upon it. So we go to the life of Christ and more specifically, perhaps to his final expression of forgiveness through his work on the cross. But we can go to any number of other places, right? We can go to the woman of ill repute who anointed him. And, and wet his feet with her tears and wiped it with her hair. We can go to the woman with the issue of blood. We can go to any number of these other circumstances to see the concept of forgiveness. 
And in the past, I've termed the nature of how we've related ourselves to forgiveness in two ways. I've talked about two different types of forgiveness that we see in Jesus Christ. Uh, we, I've termed them passive forgiveness and active forgiveness. I've been thinking through that more, and I don't know if those are the best terms. I'm going to keep them for now. They may change at some point. But I'm going to define them to, to let you understand, and then however you want to think about them, you think about them in that way. I'm this is, not, this is not Bible, right? We're not going to see passive and active forgiveness in the Bible. I'm systematizing what I see in the Bible in a way that we can wrap our minds around, okay? So this is, this is pastor speak here. With passive forgiveness being the process of willingly releasing a person from guilt associated with their offenses, regardless of them. Passive forgiveness is a type of forgiveness that has nothing to do with the offender himself. They don't have to be worthy of it. They don't have to ask for it. They don't even have to want it. It serves not to, have, not to fundamentally affect your relationship with them in any way. It serves to release you from sorrow, guilt, and frustration of the offense and to keep you right with God. That's what I'm defining as passive forgiveness. And then you have active forgiveness. And this is the one that has everything to do with you and the offender, this is the one that is initiated through repentance. This is the process that fixes the relationship between you and another as the person who has wronged acknowledges their wrong. And then there's able to be reconciliation. Both of these types of forgiveness are exemplified through Jesus Christ in the word of God and both serve a very needful purpose. So let's begin with this concept of passive forgiveness. It is not conditioned upon worth, merit, change, or request. The person does not have to be worthy of it. He does not have to earn it. He does not have to change, and he doesn't have to ask for it. It serves to release the offended from anger and resentment. And we see this exemplified specifically through Jesus' finished work on the cross. This was a work that was total. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning. 1 John 2, 2 tells us that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Jesus did not just pay for the sins of an elect few on the cross, did he? He paid for the sins of every man, of every woman who would ever live. Every sin placed under the blood of Christ, every sin paid for, every offense committed by the first Adam and his seed was paid for by the last Adam on the cross, a once-for-all sacrifice. Now, what I just said is, as, I, as we even talked about a little bit in, in this morning, is plenty controversial in theological circles. The Calvinist believes Jesus, Jesus died, his, his blood was effective only for the sins of the elect those that God has chosen from time immemorial to go to heaven. So Jesus only paid for those sins. So the Calvinists would disagree with me on this. The Catholic believes that we must confess to a priest and crucify Christ again and again in the Eucharist, do penance, bring about a measure of reconciliation through begging for it, through Hail Marys, through various other acts of penance. You have to beg God to show him you're serious. And then he will condescend to release you for every individual sin. I will not take the time today to defend all of the statements I've made individually as it relates to the various theological differences that we see. I've talked about them before. I talked about them in Sunday school. We'll talk about them just this morning. We'll talk about them again. They'll come up. Uh, it's beyond the scope of what we're actually talking about today. So I'm taking these things for granted that 
if, if, even if you don't necessarily agree that you are understanding where I'm coming from as it relates to how I interpret the nature of Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. But let me do say this before I move on past this point. What I teach today about forgiveness, both in this passive and this active idea, is a natural extension about, of, of how I interpret redemption. And one of the blessed confirmations I have that this traditional interpretation of the text is correct is in these types of applications. In other words, when I see, when, when, when I extend the definition of forgiveness through the way that I interpret redemption, forgiveness works perfectly. If I were to extend forgiveness through the interpretation of redemption that Calvinism lays down, or that Catholicism lays down, forgiveness doesn't make any sense anymore. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to work anymore. And so I see through the way forgiveness works as interpreted through my understanding of Jesus Christ, a confirmation that the way I'm understanding Jesus Christ has merit, has validity. I will never use the application to prove the doctrine. We never use application to prove doctrine. But when application works properly based upon doctrine, it gives me confidence that the doctrine has merit. Does that make sense? So we find in scriptures, we find that the scriptures are filled with the nature of forgiveness. And it reflects this purchase, this this forgiveness that, that we see also reflected in Jesus Christ on the cross. Passive forgiveness, as I've defined it. A work of forgiveness which was secured without any merit of men. Man could not earn Jesus Christ's forgiveness that he paid for on the cross without any expectation of change. I come to Christ to be changed. I don't change myself to come to Christ. I cannot change myself to come to Christ. This is why if you use the word repentance in your gospel, you have to be very, very careful with it. Because once again, when people think of the idea of repentance, they think of the idea that I have to change. I have to do something. I've dealt with this in the jail too. A young lady, I remember, she said, I, I gave the gospel. She said, but don't you have to repent? And I'm not, I, I can't do that. I've tried to change and I can't change. And she had connected repentance to this idea that you have to change yourself to come to Christ. It doesn't work that way, right? And so if Jesus Christ's forgiveness was purchased for me without merit and was acknowledging that I must receive it before I can change, right? So it doesn't demand change. It can't require change. And it was purchased before I ever desired it or requested it. And it was purchased for men who will never desire it or request it. Well, then we have this very interesting and unique perspective as it relates to uh, forgiveness, don't we? And the nature of forgiveness. God sent his son to die on the cross to secure the forgiveness of man's sin wholly as an extension of his purpose to undo in himself what was done in Adam, to restore what has been lost. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32 says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. These are parallel passages there in Colossians and then here in Ephesians. This word here, forgive, 
forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Notice that this word, it is a, it is an, a, a derivative of the word charis, or charis, or charis. People not pronounce it different ways. It's the word grace. It is speaking of a gracious extension, a showing of favor, a reflection of God's forgiveness toward us rooted in grace. We see here Paul emphasizing the gracious forgiveness of Jesus Christ, the kind of forgiveness that was seen on the cross. For by grace are ye saved through faith. A grace that is extended without merit, a grace that is extended without obligation, a grace that is extended before change, a grace that is extended without request, a grace that is extended without desire. This kind of grace, forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. A word rooted in the idea of releasing a person whether or not they ever ask for it, of releasing a person whether or not they ever deserve it. And this is how God has treated us. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins before we were even born. Before we could ask for it, in spite of the fact that we could never deserve it, Jesus secured mankind's forgiveness. And this is what I speak of when I say passive forgiveness. It is not uncommon for us as humans to feel as though our obligation to forgive only extends as far as the offender's willingness to ask for it or to deserve it, ability to deserve it. And to this extent, they have to prove that they are sorry before we'll forgive them. But God has called us to something very, very different, Christian. God has called us to reject any words, actions, or attitudes which lend themselves to bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, or malice. How many times has your unforgiveness led to one of those negative virtues? How many times has your unwillingness to release someone, maybe because they don't want to be released, maybe because they actually liked what they did, maybe because they're trying to punish you, and so you are going to punish them back by withholding forgiveness. How much does that affect them, and how much does it affect you? How much bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, and malice is in your heart because of you choosing to withhold from another forgiveness based on their offenses? And now they have power over you. They don't ask forgiveness. You destroy yourself. They don't have to lift a finger. You're doing a fine job yourself. And then, of course, Satan gets the handhold. He opens wide that door and takes you deeper and deeper and deeper. Instead, our interactions with all men, regardless of their actions toward us, are ordained to be defined by this, this passive forgiveness which exists completely outside of the offender's attitudes or actions toward me. God's gift of salvation through Jesus Christ operates outside of man's worth, outside of his willingness to ask for it, outside of his desire. So should it be among God's people with the offended and the offenders. When you are wronged, when your loved one is wronged, and for some of you, it may not be you. Let's take our, maybe get outside of this context. Maybe you're, 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 you're withholding forgiveness from someone who has wronged your sibling or your spouse or your child. Someone you love, your parent. And you are taking up their offense. And you are living under the weight, the burden, or the specter of an offense against someone you love. Sometimes that's even harder than against you, right? 
when you've been hurt, when you are being hurt, you are called by God to operate in a constant state of personal forgiveness toward the offender. Now, what does this not mean? This does not mean that the relationship between you two will be good, right? That's active forgiveness. We'll get there. This has nothing to do with you and them and in a reconciling idea, your relationship with the offender. This has everything to do with your relationship with God and with your own heart. It does not mean that you pretend that they have not hurt you or that they are not hurting you. It doesn't mean that you operate as if it never happened. We'll talk about that a little bit more. The concept of passive forgiveness does not imply that you simply roll over and take abuse. The concept of passive forgiveness does not imply that you ignore wrongs being done against you. But it does expect that in your heart you have released them from the weight of those wrongs. As Paul said here in uh, last time, the Lord reward him according to his works. Judgment is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. I'm going to release you, Alexander the coppersmith, but that doesn't mean God's going to release you, right? But that's God's business. That's God's business. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 shows us why this concept is so important. Because the absence of, for, of forgiveness facilitates the presence of evil. There are Christians all around this country living in bitterness, resentment, anger toward people that have wronged them or someone they love. And if we withhold our forgiveness until a person asks for it, and I know I'm being a little repetitious here, but I need to make this clear. If I withhold it until they earn it, if I withhold it until they end up um, being worthy of it in some way, then you very well may spend your entire life living in unforgiveness and all of its consequences. Because many of these people will never seek out that forgiveness. Some of them don't even know they need to be forgiven. That's another issue altogether. Some of them are very happy to not ask for forgiveness because they want to punish you. They, they're not sorry. And if you bind your forgiveness to their asking for it or being worthy of it, then you're binding yourself to their actions. You're binding your emotions. You're binding your spirit. You're binding your relationship to God and others, much less your own spiritual well-being, to their actions, to their disposition. God has never ordained you to live that way. It won't hurt them nearly as much as it will hurt you. It, won't it may not even trouble them but it will deeply damage you. And when you refuse to release another, even if they have not asked for it or if they do not deserve it, you are binding your spirit, its health, its peace, its vigor to them and their actions. You're placing yourself under their power. But if you put off the old man by living in passive forgiveness at all times, Releasing the wrongs done against you, whether a person asks for it, as quickly as you can after the offense, then you free yourself. You free your spirit from the dangers of bitterness and anger and evil and resentment. Don't live bound by these things. Forgive others as you have been forgiven by God in Christ. Release them from their offenses, not for their sake, but for God's sake and for your own that you may be the children of your loving Father, and in doing so, you will free yourself. Bitterness will have nothing to hold on to. 
Anger will give way to compassion. Wrath will give way to joy and to peace. Passive forgiveness is not about your relationship with the offender. It is about your relationship with God. Living in grace and joy and peace. Living out the birthright that God has ordained for you. Don't let somebody else's actions strip from you that birthright. Don't let it happen. And this leads us to active forgiveness. Active forgiveness is conditioned upon request. Active forgiveness serves to release the offender as the foundation for a restoration of relationship. Passive forgiveness is focused upon me and God. When I'm the offended, right? Not when I'm the offender. This is, we turn all this around if I'm the one that's doing the offense. But if I've been offended, passive forgiveness is when I release the person from what they have done to me. I release those things. I forgive them. I release them in heart. It's not going to reconcile the relationship, but what it is going to do is it's going to free my spirit and keep me right with God. Active forgiveness is when the offended, when the offender, excuse me, recognizes there is a wrong that was committed and they take the steps necessary to right that wrong or to reconcile with me. Passive forgiveness serves to release you. Active forgiveness releases them, in a sense. We find an example of this in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, or a command. Jesus says, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And you say, Pastor, notice it doesn't say I have to forgive until he repent. Notice it's a different word being used in the Greek. This is not a word rooted in, in grace. Karizamai. This is a word rooted in release. Sending away, letting go, afiemi. It's a different word, and it's a different concept being spoken of here. Passive forgiveness in Ephesians 4.32, in Colossians, spoke of gracious, voluntarily, for, voluntary forgiveness of an offense without being requested as a means of releasing me, really. In this word, this concept I'm calling active forgiveness, this is conditioned upon the willingness of the offender to acknowledge the wrongdoing, to seek reconciliation. And once again, this mirrors the relationship with God beautifully, doesn't it? The concept of passive forgiveness is reflected in the gospel of grace, whereby God proactively secures our release without ever asking for it or without merit. But as believers, there's a whole nother level of fellowship, which is entirely dependent upon our attitude of our offenses against God, isn't there? First, in the proactive forgiveness that God has shown toward us, we acknowledge it and we accept it in order to enter into the relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And then second, as a daily manner in which the Christian lives, living, sinning, and then confessing our sins to the Lord, and he actively then forgiving us to bring us back into fellowship when we have fallen out of fellowship through rebellion. We're walking with God abiding in Christ, walking in the Spirit, uh, enjoying the closeness with Christ. And then we sin. And when we sin, we fall out of fellowship. I give the example when I'm talking with people about this regularly. My wife and I are married, believe it or not. And as a married couple, we have bound ourselves together till death do we part, 
regardless of circumstances, right? Very much so a picture of salvation by grace through faith. But just because we are, we are bound together in this covenant does not necessarily mean that we're always in fellowship. There are times where through circumstances of mine or hers, we offend one another, and there is a distance put between my wife and I. Now, in this distance, we do not become unmarried. And in reconciliation, we do not have to go back to the altar. The ring stays on the finger. But in that distance, there is a loss of fellowship which cannot be restored until there is acknowledgement of wrongs and reconciliation. And so when I acknowledge my fault and I go, honey, I'm sorry, I should not have done that. I should not have said that. Please forgive me. We don't go back to the marriage altar, but we do come back together in fellowship. There is a passive forgiveness that always takes place in the marriage relationship whereby we acknowledge that we are bound one to another and that does not go away. So we love one another unconditionally in sickness or in health, in richer or poorer, right? All those things. The idea there is an unconditional nature of love that it must be bound through a passive forgiveness whereby we are releasing one another and we are functioning together as one flesh. But then that fellowship is truly secured through an active forgiveness state whereby when there are offenses done one against another, we communicate them, we acknowledge them, we, 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 we repent of them, and we come back together in closer fellowship. So 1 John tells us how to have fellowship. Verses 6 through 9 of chapter 1. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It's that same word, aphiomi. It's not charizomai and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have fellowship by walking in the light, Christian, by submitting ourselves to the Spirit of God. We fool ourselves if we think that as believers we do not sin, but we also fool ourselves if I think I can remain in fellowship with God while I walk in darkness. And so when I step into darkness and I fall out of fellowship with God, there's a solution. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I acknowledge my wrong to the Lord. I acknowledge he is right and I am wrong. I acknowledge, that's what confess means, to say the same thing as. I say the same thing about my offense that God says about my offense. And in doing so, I find myself back into reconciliation and thus I can be reunited in fellowship, walking in the spirit again, reattached to the vine, having the spirit of God working and flowing through me without grief or without quenching. And this is active forgiveness. A personal release conditioned upon the disposition of the offender, the confession. As unbelievers, the sole condition for salvation was the finished work of Jesus Christ. But as believers, we are called to confess our sin in order that we might receive active forgiveness and so be brought back into reconciliation and fellowship. That has nothing to do with salvation. Everything to do with maintaining fellowship with God. And take note of this fact that the Bible does not say God may forgive us our sins when we confess. He is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins every time, immediately and totally. And that's what we saw from Luke, right? It has nothing to do with me earning back fellowship and trust. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ extending a relationship with me that he's already secured by the cross.
This is the idea, this is the connection between passive and active forgiveness. That because I've already forgiven them in my heart, because I've already released them through passive forgiveness, when they come for reconciliation, I don't have to think about it. I don't have to work it up in me to be reconciled because the reconciliation is simply the last piece in a puzzle that has already been built in my heart through passive forgiveness. I've already released them. I just at this point need them to come and bring about reconciliation. And this is where my wife taught me these lessons. My wife has a few interesting phrases that she uses to teach this. One of them is that when I go to her and I ask for her forgiveness, she says it, 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 was, it, it was already forgiven. She'd already made that choice. She says that a lot. She has to say it a lot. Some of you got that. Some of you, it'll, it'll come. The other, though, the one that hit me like a lightning bolt was that we were... She, she had been an offender at one time early in our marriage. This is while we were still down south before we moved up here. And she had acknowledged her fault, and we had been reconciled. And then a couple weeks later, um, there was a conflict of sorts, and I brought up that fault again. And my wife said, wait a minute, I thought you had forgiven me. And immediately, doctrine, it was like a tumbler just fell into place. That's what it means. Oh, release. Oh, done. Oh, not hanging over her head. Oh, reconciliation. Aha. I can't use it as a barb to poke her with because I released it. She doesn't have to spend the rest of her life wondering when it's going to come back to bite her because it's been released. That is the joy of confession. If it's just going to come back to bite me anyway, you know what? I'm not going to confess. Right? Children, you're not going to tell your parents if you did something wrong if they're going to have it hang over your head, right? So you're going to say better just not to have said anything to begin with because it's going to hang over my head for the next 10 years. Because your parents don't release it. Parents, you're not going to tell your spouse, husband, wife, you're not going to tell your spouse when you made a mistake because you know that they're just going to get crazy angry at you and then they're going to, and then the, the, next, the next years are going to be miserable because they're going to be constantly paranoid or constantly angry or constantly wondering if you're going to, if you're going to offend them again and they're going to be vulnerable and hurt and angry for the, for, forever over it. And so you're just going to not tell them. What a miserable thing, huh? What a miserable thing that you cannot be honest with your wife or honest with your husband. What a terrible thing that you can't come to a member of the body of Christ, acknowledge a fault, tell them that you're struggling with some sin, and trust that they're not going to use that as a club to beat you with, but rather they're going to seek unto reconciliation and restore. What a terrible thing that confession of our sin one to another does not bring us closer to one another. It tears us apart. This is not how God has designed it to be. This is not how the marriage relationship is designed to be. This is not how a, a child-parent relationship is designed to be. This is not what forgiveness is, Christian. Spouse, if you, if, if you expect your, your spouse to spend the next years earning uh, your forgiveness, you're doing it wrong. Now, we'll talk about the idea of trust. There's a difference. Trust has to be earned. 
I owe nobody my trust. I owe you reconciliation. I owe you relationship. I owe you love. I owe you these things. I do not owe you trust. Trust is something that is built over time. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now let's translate these truths into, our, into this act of forgiveness idea. Jesus says, if a brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. We're to make known the offenses against us. How can a person seek reconciliation if they don't know that they've wronged you? It's not fun to tell a person that they've wronged you. It's going to add to the, to, it's going to add drama. It's going to add complication. It's going to add some things. But you know what? They can't reconcile with you if they don't know that you've been wronged. Our highest loyalty as believers is to the truth. We're going to talk about this next week. Where truth is lacking, perspective and understanding is lacking too. If you've got something against me as pastor, if I said something you don't like, if I did something to you that you did not like, if I went back on something I said I would do, uh, you got to tell me. Don't just brood about it for weeks on end and then eventually leave because pastor just doesn't care. And then you say, pastor, I'm leaving and this is why. And I say, wow, we could have fixed that if I'd have known. Our, how can a brother or sister in Christ know he's hurt or offended you if you don't tell him? Maybe he does know, but maybe he doesn't. How can a brother or sister in Christ make things right with you if they do not know how they have wronged you or that they have wronged you, the extent to which they've wronged you? So we need to inform them, rebuke. And then if he repent, Jesus says, forgive him, right? This is the reconciliation forgiveness. If he repent, that's all well and good, pastor, but, I don't, but don't I need to wait to see if he really means it before I forgive him? No. Reconcile the relationship. Trust, trust, can, trust come. We'll, we'll, we'll come through that idea. It'll, it'll be made known very quickly whether or not. But here's the thing. Do I need to see the fruit of repentance before I forgive him? No. Notice what Jesus says. If he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn and say, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Seven times in a day, right? Now, the number seven in the Bible is a biblically significant number, right? The number seven can be literal, but it can also be figurative. It can literally mean seven times, but then, you know, you've got a log, pastor's forgiveness log, well, pastor did it three times today. He's only got four times left. And then on the eighth time, he's out of here, right? You, you know, we could take it literally, or we could recognize that the, the number seven is the number for perfection or completion, right? The number that, whereby we recognize a fullness of aspect. If somebody does something against you seven times in a day, a complete number of times, the whole number, if, 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 if he offends you and offends you and offends you, Forgive him a complete number of times. Forgiveness conditioned upon repentance, but it is absolute in scope, expected by God. How often have you sinned against God, acknowledged your wrong, brought yourself back into fellowship, and found yourself there again in just a little bit? Found yourself getting angry again, even though you've, you, you, you were angry. You were angry a little while ago, and Lord, forgive me, I shouldn't have done that, and then the kids do something else, and bam, there you are again. All right? Aren't you glad that, that God doesn't condition these things on number of times? Does God reject your repentance the second time, the third time, the eighth time? No. Are we greater than our Lord? Do we have the right to demand more than God demands of people? Do we have the right to withhold what our Lord has chosen not to withhold? We do not. We can do it. 
We can withhold forgiveness. But take note of this as well. Christian, if you withhold forgiveness, if you withhold this release, if you withhold this reconciliation, there are consequences. Jesus taught in Mark chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, and when you stand praying, forgive. If you have aught against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive you your trespasses. Notice the word again, aphiomi. This is not charizomai. We're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about release unto reconciliation, Christian. If you are knowingly and willingly withholding restoration or fellowship from a brother or sister, then you are in disobedience. Therefore, God will withhold fellowship from you. You cannot live in conscious irreconciliation with a brother on your end because you refuse to reconcile and expect that God is not going to hold you accountable. He will. He will, he will hold you at, uh, in, in, un, in, in lack of fellowship as you hold them in lack of fellowship. God will impute your lack of forgiveness for others' offenses upon you. And this is not what you want. Now, there's so much more I want to say about this topic. I lack the time. One more thing must be said, however. One more aspect of forgiveness that is mirrored by God, which must be mentioned. Passive forgiveness, an unconditional release intended to free you from anger, bitterness, resentment that can destroy your life and keep you right with God. Active forgiveness, a restoration conditioned upon repentance of the offender, releasing them from the offense as a means of restoring fellowship. But neither of these deal with that big elephant in the room. Does the release of an offense mean I have to pretend it never happened? Does the release of an offense mean I have to make myself vulnerable to them again? Because if, they, if I don't make myself vulnerable to them again, if I don't trust them, then I didn't really forgive them. No. It is important to understand that the Bible doesn't say that God forgets our sins. The Bible says God remembers our sins no more. The idea is not that God doesn't know that we have sinned. The idea is that God chooses not to bring those sins to his mind in relation to his interaction with us. He does not deal with us in accordance with our sin. Recall from earlier in 2 Timothy, Paul said this, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some unto honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. See, God offers reconciliation of relationship immediately upon confession. But you know what else? God uses usable people. God uses people he can trust. Just because God has brought you back into fellowship with him does not mean that God is going to turn you into the next great revivalist. Because God uses usable people. God is not going to blindly entrust the riches of his blessings and his kingdom to those who will squander them. God secured forgiveness for all men on the cross, unconditionally, without merit or favor, without expectation or request. God grants active forgiveness to all those who will come to him, acknowledge their offenses, and humble themselves before him. But God puts his trust into those who are trustworthy. And as we show ourselves trustworthy, as we show ourselves good stewards of his riches, he gives us more responsibility in his kingdom. 
and so too should we. You are under every obligation to release those who have offended you, whether they want that release, whether they ask for that release, whether they deserve that release. This is your best good, your relationship with God. This is passive forgiveness. You are under every obligation to restore fellowship with those who acknowledge their wrongs to you and seek for restoration. This is your best good for your relationship with others. This is active forgiveness. You are under, however, no obligation to blindly, tr blindly trust those who have not shown themselves trustworthy. This is not something that a Christian is called to do. You are under no obligation to allow yourself to be continually hurt when it is in, with, in your power to stop it. And it's not always in your power to stop it. You read stories about the Christians who were in the Russian gulags during the, the, the time of the Soviet Union, and they would be daily beaten, and they would write the stories about the forgiveness that they would show. They would, they would, they would be speaking words of forgiveness to their captors. They, they, they couldn't just say, I forgive you, but I'm not, gonna, I'm, I'm not gonna let you beat me anymore. It doesn't work that way, right? It's gonna happen. They still showed the forgiveness. They had, no, they had no control over the trust issue. They had no control over the wrong was going to continue, right, unless the Lord intervened. But where it is within your power, you are not obligated to allow your, to, to, to be, hurt. you're not obligated to pain. You're not obligated to be taken advantage of. You must forgive but God reserves his trust and his privilege for those who show themselves faithful, and we can too. Now let's bring this understanding into our text. Introduction over. Verses 14 through 16. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works, of whom be thou aware also, Paul says to Timothy, for he hath greatly withstood our words. At, fir at my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Last time we considered this wrong that Alexander had done. It's possible that this Alexander the coppersmith is the same Alexander that we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, when Paul said that he had delivered Hymenaeus and Alexander unto Satan because of their blasphemies against Christ. It could be that this is that Alexander. We'll dig a little bit more next week into that. That is what lends me to believe that this is a theological issue going on here, not just a practical issue of disagreement because of the possibility of this being the same Alexander. But then in verse 16, we find that this conflict over some issue, probably theological, Paul says he gave an answer. I already said that's the word apologia, from which we get our word apology, meaning a defense of something. Paul made this defense or this argument against Alexander, and he says that when he made this defense in, in this argument, all of his companions forsook him. No man stood with him and backed him up in his defense. He was, presumably, I'm interpreting this, if this was a theological contention here. Some people believe it was a, a legal contention. We'll talk about that next week. But if this was a theological contention, Paul was asserting some apostolic truth. And the Christians that were around him heard what, what Alexander said, heard what Paul said, and were not confident to stand with Paul in his defense. And Paul saw this as a measure of wrong. He is an apostle of the living Christ, and these men forsook him. Alexander thus did Paul much evil, 
Regarding Alexander, Paul humbled himself and commended Alexander to the Lord. But notice Paul also speaks to his failed companions here. And his solution was, I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Forgiveness. Paul speaks not of revenge, not of bitterness, not of resentment, but rather, I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. That is forgiveness. That's graciousness. His companions forsook him. He was determined to forgive, and he prayed that God would extend to them the same release that he was determined to extend himself as he followed the example of God in Christ. Christian, all manner of conflicts will rage around you throughout your life. People will attack you, seek to harm you actively. People will hurt you without them ever even knowing it by proxy of their disregard for you, perhaps, or by proxy of uh, their negligence or ignorance. They'll say something that will hurt you and they, they don't even realize that it would or they never put the pieces together. And Maybe they should have because they know your circumstances, but they didn't. They were not careful. They were not... Um, they were not, it was, it, was, it was something that was unkind. It was something that was unfeeling. Maybe it's just that they're ignoring you, not giving you the, the attention. Children, you might feel as though one parent is leaving you out, giving more attention to someone. They always love sister more than, I, than they love me. These sorts of things. There's always going to be offenses, problems, sometimes willingly. If you hang around long enough, see, people will fail you. If you hang around here long enough, this church will fail you. If you hang around here long enough, I'm going to fail you. Because I'm human. Because we're people. You're going to get hurt. Because hurts happen in life. Some things will happen willingly. Some of them will happen unknowingly. Many others because of distraction, confusion, miscommunication, forgetfulness, apathy, ignorance. And it's our privilege in following Christ into a selfless life of humility to forgive. To passively forgive every offense immediately and completely, as best you can. Actively forgive those who either through confrontation or through time and circumstance seek forgiveness and restoration. To fail this is to harm yourself, your relationship with God, your relationship with others, to draw you outside of fellowship with God and man, stripping you from the power of the Spirit of God to bear his fruit in you. Navigating conflict is not an easy thing. But if you can first be determined to set yourself aside and to humble yourself before God and man, and then step into every interaction with a predecided determination to passively release people of their offenses, always with an eager eye toward actively releasing them as reconciliation happens through repentance, with the eventual intended end of trust you'll be well on your way to handling conflict properly. So how are you doing today, Christian? As I've spoken of these things, has the Spirit of God taken these words and, and brought someone to mind, some circumstance, some wrong, where it has become apparent that you are living in a state of unforgiveness, of, of a lack of passive release, where you have allowed bitterness or resentment or unforgiveness or wrath or clamor or malice or, or evil speaking to, to, to fill your heart or to have some stronghold in your heart 
because you have not released someone and you are binding yourself to their actions. You're holding offenses. And here's the thing, it feels good. It feels good to hold that offense. It feels good to, to, to think on the wrong that was done to you, to justify yourself. It, it gives some people, it gets to the point where that's their purpose. They're afraid. You're afraid to release it because it, it so drives you. It is your motivation. What will you be motivated by if not these offenses? What a terrible motivation. What an unpleasant way to live. Certainly not how God has ordained you to live. It's not how you have to live. Yes, but pastor, if I give it up, what will I be driven by? Give it up and see. You might be surprised. In obedience to the Lord, yield it. Release it, Christian. I'm not saying it's easy. I've had, I've, I've, I've had to spend months before working on passive forgiveness where I, I think about it 100 times a day, what they did to me. And every time I want to dwell on it because it feels good to dwell on it because they wronged me. And, and every time I have to stop it in the gate of my mind, as soon as I start to indulge that little bit of, of the drug of unforgiveness, I have to say, no, I'm not gonna do this. Lord, I forgive them, help me forgive them. And then it becomes from 100 times a day to 10 times a day. And then from 10 times a day, to 10 times a week, and then from 10 times a week to 10 times a month, and then from 10 times a month to it's done now, there is release. It's, I'm not saying it's an easy process. I'm not saying it's, 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 it's immediate. For some people it is, for some people it isn't. For some offenses it can be. For some offenses, maybe it can't be in your heart. But fight for it, Christian. Fight for that release. Make it happen with God's help in Christ. Christ did it for you. He, you have his spirit within you. You can, through him, Release. Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Determine to release them, Christian. Be unrelenting in this determination. The decision can be quick. The effort may be long, but do it. Don't quit until in your heart there is no malice, no anger at the thought of the offense or the offender. Fight for forgiveness. When do I know I found it, Pastor? When you can think upon the person, when you can think upon what they did for you, and there may still be pain, and there may still be sorrow, but there is not malice, bitterness, and anger. When you can think upon that circumstance or the person objectively, when you can, when, when you can think upon that person and, and wish that they would come to you and ask forgiveness, so that you can reconcile with them. When you ache for reconciliation with them, when you desire reconciliation with them, this is when you found passive release. And then, of course, if they don't know what they've done, then you have to confront them. Truth, we'll talk about that next week. If they know what they've done, then pray for active release. Pray for reconciliation. Don't allow your conflict to strip you of your love, to strip you of your peace, to strip you of your joy. These are your birthright in Christ. Give them up for nothing. Yield them for nothing. Hold on to them with all of the might that the grace of God gives you. And let us forgive as we have been forgiven. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.